I'm standing in Riverside Park near the 76th Street basketball courts, and this is a significant location in New York City cinema history because, well, this is where Paul Kersey committed his first murder. He came out of his apartment building just across the way here at uh, 33 Riverside Drive, paused at the entrance, and then descended the steps down into Riverside Park. And inside of 30 seconds, he was spotted and stalked by a gun-wielding mugger. You got money, man? Shit, I'll kill you. Give me your money or I'll bust you up. At which point, Paul Kersey turned, revolver in hand, and shot his mugger dead. This was a scene from the 1974 thriller Death Wish, directed by Michael Winner, starring Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey. And while few would call it one of the great New York movies, it is certainly one of the most influential. It spawned a glut of sequels and rip-offs, and also real-life imitators, as well as a way of thinking about crime in cities that persists to this day. In fact, there's so much to say about Death Wish and the effect it had on both the people who made it and the people who watched it, and we're discussing it over the course of two episodes. And here to help us decode it, we have writer and pop culture connoisseur Latoya Ferguson. Let me boost my audio. I'll even do that. There we go. We have journalism professor and film writer Matt Priget. Where am I going with this? I don't know. We have film historian and author Paul Talbot. And I was like, what the heck did I just see? And we have filmmaker and Death Wish 3 co-star Alex Winter. There's <laughs> just no part about talking about Death Wish 3 that doesn't make me laugh. I'm Jason Bailey. And this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. The city of New York, we've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> How does it feel to be back in the war zone? In New York City. You look like in New York? Motherfucker. I said turn around. Give me the money. I'm catching the 1040 back to New York. This goddamn city. Fun City Cinema. By Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. You ever get tired of living in that toilet? You're welcome here. Who's this fucking guy? Get the fuck out of here! Trying to run a city, not a goddamn democracy. So I'm just a victim. Clark, everybody in this city is a victim. So before we get into what Death Wish did, we should probably begin by laying out exactly what Death Wish was, for those of you who haven't seen it. Because I can't say I recommend it exactly. I mean, it's morally reprehensible. But... It's sociologically fascinating. We begin on a beach in Hawaii, where New York City architect Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson, and his wife Joanna, played by Hope Lang, are enjoying the last day of their vacation. Oh, I don't want to go back home. And soon we see why. Paul returns to his office, where a co-worker helpfully fills him in on the crime statistics of his vacation period. There were 15 murders the first week, and 21 last week in this goddamn city. That's a lot. 
You know, decent people are going to have to work here and live somewhere else. By decent people, you mean people who can afford to live somewhere else. Oh, Christ. You are such a bleeding-heart liberal, Paul. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. The underprivileged are beating our goddamn brains out. You know what I say? Stick them in concentration camps. That's what I say. Conveniently enough, just as Paul's co-worker is packing in all the film's signposts about out-of-control crime and police shortages, a trio of thugs, led by an especially twitchy Jeff Goldblum in his film debut, is following Joanna home from the grocery store. Hold still, don't move. What do you want? Don't jive, mother, you know what we want. In a brutal sequence, reminiscent of a clockwork orange, the gang murders Paul's wife and rapes his daughter, leaving her catatonic. The police don't offer him much hope. Any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. In the city, that's the way it is. Paul is so square he nurses a glass of milk while mourning his wife, and is so passive that while doing so, he sees criminals stripping a car in front of his apartment building and merely pulls down his window shade. But his next work assignment takes him out to Tucson, Arizona, where his client schools him in the frontier justice of the Old West, and takes him to a gun club to hear some future NRA talking points. It's a goddamn much hoopla from the gun control people. Half the nation scared to even hold a gun. You know, like it was a snake who was going to bite you or something. Hell, a gun, a gun is just a tool, like a hammer or an axe. You're probably one of them knee-jerk liberals thinks us gun boys will shoot our guns because it's a, an extension of our penises. I never thought about it that way. But it could be true. Or maybe it is. But this is gun country. Can he own a handgun in New York City? Out here, I hardly know a man that doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something, unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they just plain get the asses blown off. The client sends Kersey back to New York with a 32 revolver in his bag. You're checking this bag through, aren't you? Uh, good. Let me slip a little going away present in there for you. Upon his return, he discovers that his daughter has been committed to a mental institution and finds the vacation photos of his late wife. And then... Halfway through the film, he shoots his first mugger. It doesn't come easily to him, not at first, but he goes back out, the next time spotting three black teens beating up a guy in an alley and shooting them all. And then the scope of his activities widens. When two bearded, long-haired muggers are harassing riders on the subway, an NYPD officer literally looks the other way and walks out of the car. So Paul hides his gun behind a newspaper and waits for them to attack. And then he calmly waits for the train to pull into the next stop and strolls right out. He leaves the Upper West Side and heads to Times Square, where he all but waves his money around in a diner, a sex worker sees him and motions two black stick-up guys to follow him into the 8th Avenue A train station. Hey, mister, got a match? Yeah. What else you got? 
I see the money, man. You'll have to take it. Meanwhile, the resourceful Inspector Ochoa, played by Vincent Gardenia, connects these shootings, and police speak out publicly against vigilante violence. And I want to say to our citizens, murder is no answer to crime in this city. Crime is a police responsibility. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade and turn himself into the police. But the local media and the citizenry celebrate him as a hero. The actions of the vigilante, as lawless as they may be, seem to be giving others new attitudes toward crime in the streets. Instead of helplessly allowing themselves to be mugged and robbed, a few are fighting back. And though Ochoa comes to believe that Paul Kersey is responsible for the killings, his superiors adopt a, well, he's rich and white and he's doing our job for us, what's the harm kind of attitude. Suppose this Paul Kersey is the vigilante. All right, let's say that. We don't want him. Okay. Inspector, on my desk I have a statistic red hot out of the computer. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? $9.50 a week to $4.70, he reported last week. You understand not too many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh, no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. We'd have vigilantes out in the street killing anybody who even looked greasy. You can see that. We want this man to quit, desist, go away. To stop. So, in possession of the murder weapon, Ochoa makes a deal with the killer. We uh, have here a peculiar situation, Mr. Kersey. We find it necessary to make you a proposition since you are not going to favor us by dying. You uh, work for a company with lots of offices. Get a transfer to another city, and I'll drop this gun in the river. And in the final scene... Paul Kersey does what he's told. Mr. Kersey. Paul Kersey. Fred Brown. Welcome to Chicago, sir. Did you have a nice trip? Yeah, it was okay. Good, good. I found a nice apartment for you. I hope you're going to like it. It's on the Lakeshore Drive. You have a view of Lake Michigan, morning sun. We've got your office ready, too. There's a very good golf club that you play. Listen, I think you'll enjoy it here. Excuse me. And Kersey, distracted by a gang of men harassing a young woman, goes to help her collect her things. And then, smiling broadly, points his finger at them in the shape of a pistol. The book it's based on by Brian Garfield is has the same general plot, which is like, uh, he's, an, he's an accountant in the book. This is Matt Perget. He's a film writer, he's a film professor, and he's something of an unofficial expert on Michael Winner, director of Death Wish. He's a different name, but he's like a New York uh, New Yorker, uh, in like you know, dangerous 1970s New York, his wife and daughter are assaulted. His wife is murdered, and he winds up like getting a gun and starting shooting people. But the book is extremely against that. It is like this is a, this is a book that is extremely against vigilantism. And Michael Winner, well, he jettisoned that perspective. His interpretation is that Paul Kersey, which is the character that was named in the movies with Bronson, that you know he sort of reluctantly gets into it at first into like the actual vigilantism, but he comes to like it. And that is not what is in the book at all. And so the whole thing, it's a celebration of it. And 
even the people at the studio were just like, are you, really? Are you, are you sure you want to do this? And even Bronson himself, Charles Bronson was like, I don't, we can't be saying that like, he enjoys killing. Like, that's, that's morally reprehensible. And Michael Winner's like, no, we are saying that. That's what it is. People want, you know, they want to cheer this guy on as he's murdering people, as he's taking the law into his own hand and killing people. He's a judge, jury, and executioner, and this is a good thing. Exactly. It's a very, uh, a very black and white film. That's Paul Talbot, author of the books Bronson's Loose on the set of the Death Wish films and Bronson's Loose again on the set with Charles Bronson. I mean, there is a little bit of discussion in the film with some other characters about we shouldn't have this vigilante and things like that. But overall, the attitude of the film is, hey, this guy's right. He has to go out and kill these people. Death Wish deploys many of the same cinematic tools as John Alvidson's Joe before it or Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver after both of which we'll discuss in later episodes, but with none of their philosophical ambiguity. Those filmmakers didn't intend for audiences to cheer for Joe or Travis Bickle, though some would. But Death Wish is pitched squarely as a white, urban, upper-class fantasy aimed at viewers who will get high on the image of a guy like them taking out a bunch of black, brown, and poor people, just like the ones that seem to be taking over their cities. It is interesting to see um, how prescient a lot of the stuff is or just relevant is still today. This is pop culture writer Latoya Ferguson. One of the best scenes actually is um, at the party where just this guy's talking about how, well, the vigilante, he must be racist because you know how he, he's killing more black muggers than white muggers, to which someone replies, What do you want us to do? Increase the proportion of white muggers who will have racial equality among muggers? Oh, no, racial equality among muggers. This is a um, Twitter conversation I've seen daily, basically. Every, like every time a, a black person is shot by the cops, I see the same Twitter argument, basically. Now, it should be noted in the interest of absolute accuracy that Paul Kersey doesn't only kill people of color. But the explanation for that is pretty cynical, too. It is a diverse group. It's not just like black and brown people. It's like, you know, he brags in the, in his memoir when he was making Death Wish, the studio was just like, Paramount, they were sort of like horrified. They were like, you can't just depict like black people. It can't just be black people. And so he went out and he like got like a more diverse list of muggers. I even clocked that it seems strangely cognizant of that even before that scene, because at first it seems like he is kind of just going after white muggers. So I'm like, huh. And then the black people show up. I'm like, okay, there we go. That's back to normal. And then he's like, who does he cast as the main mugger in the beginning? The people who actually, the gang that murders his wife and rapes his daughter. The lead, lead guy is Jeff Goldblum, a young, no, a, an actor that no one really knows yet named Jeff Goldblum. And he's like, oh, I got a Jew instead of a black. It's all we have. Rich people like you, shit, we want money, mother, now get it! That's the, yeah, that's the winner touch. I'm actually kind of fascinated by the way class is not addressed. It, because it seems like the things that this movie does that I think it does well, it kind of trips into them in a way because it's not kind of criticizing the class of it all because it's just like, it is kind of that good old boy mentality. He's like, well, he just wants it like, you know, the way things were in the wild, wild west, basically. It's, it's strange um, that you have the perfect opportunity to, to make these uh, like discussions about class and ha how it's just, there's a pr certain privilege that is definitely being afforded uh, a character like Kiersey that he, he gets away with it and he continues to get away with it for multiple films. But you're you're not addressing that aspect of it. Like what allows him to do that? It's the fact that he is an affluent white man and it just, that's not part of it somehow. 
Critics were mostly unkind to the film in 1974. The New York Times' Vincent Canby wrote that it, quote, seems to have been made for no reason except to exploit its audience's urban paranoia and vestigial fascination with violence for its own sake, unquote. He called Death Wish, quote, a despicable movie, one that raises complex questions in order to offer bigoted, frivolous, oversimplified answers, end quote. Variety's unnamed reviewer deemed it a, quote, poisonous incitement to do-it-yourself law enforcement, while The New Yorker's Penelope Gillat felt, quote, it degrades audiences by bringing out the rah-rah small boy in every watcher, end quote. And Roger Ebert called it, quote, propaganda for private gun ownership and a call to vigilante justice, end quote. The New York Daily News' Rex Reed, however, wrote that he identified with Bronson's character and predicted, quote, people who are tired of being frightened, endangered, and ripped off daily in New York City are going to love Charles Bronson and Death Wish as much as I do, end quote. For once in his life, Rex Reed was right. Death Wish was a box office smash, playing for over two years and ranking as one of the year's biggest hits, alongside the likes of The Towering Inferno, Blazing Saddles, and The Godfather Part II. It was sold to New Yorkers with a full-page ad in The Times, featuring an image of a pistol-packing Bronson and the memorable tagline, Vigilante, City Style, Judge, Jury, and Executioner. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. I said, turn around. Give me the money. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Vincent Canby was so dumbfounded by the film's success, he saw it again with an audience. In a piece titled Death Wish Exploits Fear Irresponsibly, he wrote, quote, its powers to arouse through demonstrations of action are not unlike those of a pornographic movie. And he reported, if you allow your wits to take flight, it's difficult not to respond with the kind of lunatic cheers that rocked the Lowe's Astor Plaza when I was there the other evening. At one point, a man behind me shouted with the light, that'll teach the mothers. This was a movie that actually played to, to urban audiences as well. People in New York went to go see it. And, you know, Michael Winner, he talks in his memoir, he brags about, you just like, oh, you know, people were worried that I was going to be showing, you know, a white man shooting black people and so forth. But like the black people, the black people in the audience, they loved it too. By September, the film had remained popular enough for the Times to send journalist Judy Klemsrud out for a follow-up. In her piece, What Do They See in Death Wish? She noted that the film had broken house records locally. Quote, at the Cine, at 86th Street and 3rd Avenue, the first week's gross of $70,359 even topped the previous house record set there by The Godfather. And moviegoers, she noted, quote, don't just sit there in their seats calmly munching popcorn. They applaud and cheer wildly whenever Bronson dispatches a mugger with his trusty 32 pistol, end quote. Surveying the crowd afterwards, she wrote, quote, I found it hard to find anyone who was critical of the film. Of the 30 people I talked to, only four objected to the film. The others loved it. A white-haired 62-year-old secretary from Queens said, I, like Charles Bronson, don't approve of killing, but at least the people he killed were not good people. I'm glad the police let him go at the end. A pregnant 30-year-old woman from Brooklyn said, I think what Bronson did is right. No one else is doing anything. Our system just isn't working today. So you've got to protect your own self. And a 43-year-old advertising salesman chimed in, If we had more people like Bronson, we would have less crime. I would like to do something like Bronson, but I don't see how I would get away with it. 
And on that note of, uh, of semi-savagery, uh, I'd like to bring in my co-host, Mike Hull, because Mike, I think it's important when we're talking about both, you know, the, the attitudes that were in play when they were making Death Wish and also among the audiences, especially in New York, that were receiving it, like that we really understand the condition of the city uh, socially, economically, uh, and criminologically, if that's, is that a word? Did I put too many pieces of a word together there anyway to sort of understand what the city was like right then well you're coming out of of the kind of promise and hope of the Lindsay era right right you know he came in in the early mid 60s really came on the scene and and was very hopeful and optimistic and he was a republican but not the kind we kind of think about now you know he's a a, a more liberal republican right that was a thing that was like that was a whole thing a liberal republican like that was that was a subset remember when you could be uh what is it fiscally conservative and socially liberal, I think, was kind of right. the theory behind that, right? right? Which, of course, doesn't really yeah. make a lot of sense in, in and of itself. No. But like Rockefeller was kind of considered a, a, a liberal Republican, you know, so he was totally. and he was, you know, governor. And and so that wasn't just like kind of a thing that people like wore on their their little buttons. It was a real center of power. You know, it was a philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, a, an active governing philosophy at that time. There's this kind of great society focus, and, but there's also support right. for all of that stuff. There's, it's a governing principle. There's f federal support for it, so on and so forth, right? Like federal, like financial, financial federal support. You mean? Right, right. Not just you know WPA gotcha. posters, but like actual money sure. that was coming in. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. for to feed kids and to support housing and mm -hmm. so on and so forth, education. By the time you know, we're getting to the era that we're talking about now around the death, death Wish movies. You know, Lindsay is out. Not only is Lindsay out, but Lyndon Johnson is out and been replaced by Richard Nixon. Right. Who is not a liberal Republican who, you know, <laughs> if you look at right. the policies that, that some of the policies Nixon was talking about. Today, they would place him, you know, as a very liberal Republican. Right. But at that time, right. he was considered a conservative. He sold himself as a conservative. And, and the whole Lindsay, yeah. you know, Lyndon Johnson philosophy is gone. And part of the reason why it's gone is because politically, a lot of the people who were working on that had turned their attention to Vietnam. You know, and so you've got, you know, big protests have really moved away from the war on poverty and, and the poor people's campaign and really has become a big focus on getting out of Vietnam and ending some of mm -hmm. our militarism. Right. And, and so the the support for these things politically has really fallen out for these kind of social safety nets and, and trying to improve the lot of, you know, kind of our, our economic, the most economically disadvantaged people in our society, which, of course, we can have this conversation through a racial lens and we should, mm -hmm. but it's not just that it's falling out right. for, for all poor people everywhere. Right. And, right. you know, this leads us to, you know, kind of Ford to city drop dead. Right. That famous, you know, we're not going right. to bail you out. And, and there's, there's also kind of things hap happening with the economic system globally in terms of we're starting to see more uh, kind of manufacturing jobs and stuff leaving the United States. That's when all this stuff really starts. But also it's happening in New York, right? At this point, right. we're getting to the point where there's, you know, there's no more meatpacking in the meatpacking district, right? right? And so a lot of these kind of blue collar jobs that had really supported New Yorkers and, and New York families and some of these neighborhoods. Working class New Yorkers. Working class New Yorkers. A lot of those things were going away. And so 
when you start to see those jobs going away and you're starting to see these social safety nets go away, you're starting to see all of these kind of the, the support system, the structure system, both politically and financially, to lift up the most economically disadvantaged people. All that stuff goes away within 10 years. Yeah. And and, and not only does all of the actual financial support and structure go away, but we stop talking about it that way. We stopped being hopeful. We stopped... You you know, thinking of, that we could lift up the kind of, of status of our, our most disadvantaged people. I think one of the things that's important to understand, too, that that's part of that whole economic mix is the role that white flight played in that, that like that so much of the city's economic fortune rested on tax revenues from uh, from people who were who were increasingly moving out to the suburbs and were no longer a part of that tax base. Is that is that roughly the, the time frame when, when a lot of that's happening, too? That is. And I think that another way that that's important is electorally. You know, I think it seems like white people in this country have a pretty short, you know, we get excited and we're like, all right, we're going to, you know, help people that aren't white and we're going to elect these people to do that. But we have a pretty yeah. short leash on that stuff. Right. Like yeah. Obama had both houses of Congress for two years and then yeah. it was like, oh, that's it. You didn't solve racism. <laughs> And and the kind of people who you're talking about, the people who participate in white flight are the people who do that, you know, who vote for George Bush and Barack Obama. Yeah. And, and if they're not getting the results that they want, you know, they kind of fucking throw a fit. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, right. Like you could call white flight the Karen movement if you wanted yeah. to, if you needed to kind of update the language. <laughs> yeah. They create this situation. And then when you see people who they never actually knew in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think that's a part of the problem here is that yeah. when we're talking about trying to help out, you know, Staten Island or the South Bronx or something, the people who are giving money for that aren't actually going there. Right. They don't actually know anybody there. Right. So they can go from, you know, we should help all of these people. We should make everything better. We should try to improve our society to the only answer is to murder people on the street <laughs> for robbery. Yes. Like they can make that that flip, which seems really fast and weird. Like if you look at the way the city government and the way the media in New York talked about the economically disadvantaged in New York, the difference, if you look at an article in 1965 and an article in 1975, it, they they it's like they're not even talking about the same country. Yeah. Let alone the same city. And and that attitude is only possible when you never actually knew the people you were talking about to begin with. As we mentioned earlier, Death Wish was based on a 1972 novel by Brian Garfield, but no one, least of all Garfield himself, which we'll discuss in the next episode, considered him the author of the film. The auteur of Death Wish was undoubtedly director Michael Winner. Here's Paul Talbot again. The novel was not a bestseller, and there was not a lot of interest in buying the screen rights. And the two uh, producers who bought it, Bobby Roberts and Hal Landers, they at first could not get the film financed. The producers nevertheless hired Oscar nominee Wendell Mays, who'd written Anatomy of a Murder, to write a screenplay adaptation. And were finally able to get the film set up at United Artists, with Sidney Lumet attached to direct. Sidney Lumet, who was a New York director, did a lot of stuff, on, you know, shot on the streets. In fact, he dropped out of Death Wish to do Serpico, another film, really gritted street film. And Sidney Lumet 
one of the producers, Bobby Roberts, I interviewed him. He said that Sidney Lumet wanted to make Death Wish in black and white starring Jack Lemmon. So that tells you there, that would have been a really, a completely different film, needless to say. Instead, it found its way into the hands of Michael Winner. He was a British director. Uh, in the 1960s, he actually started doing a lot of comedies. Like there's a movie called I'll Never Forget What's His Name with Oliver Reed. So he did a lot of comedies. And then in the early 70s, he kind of started as an action director. He'd made a number of Charles Bronson movies with him, including The Mechanic and The Stone Killer. And they were getting along really well. And he said, like, oh, I have this great script about, like, a guy who goes out and he starts, like, you know, his, his wife and, and daughter are assaulted by muggers. And he goes out, he starts shooting muggers. And Charles Bronson said, I'd like to do that. And he said, the film? And he said, no, shoot muggers. <laughs> and that's how Death Wish came about. Winner got the project in front of the Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis, who had just set up a new home office for production in New York. And De Laurentiis financed the film with a start date of February 1974. And what Michael Winner does that I like a lot, Michael Winner always shot on location. He never shot in on sets. He would go to the actual locations. For example, Death Wish is shot entirely in New York City, not just the exteriors, but also all the interiors were actual in actual restaurants, actual apartments, actual subways, things like that. Winner hired his frequent collaborator, Gerald Wilson, to rewrite the film for him. And for Bronson, since the character was written as a bald, heavyset, meek accountant. The writer and director decided Bronson was more credible as an architect, and they made a few additional changes. He changed the script, but not too much. It was the way he directed it, which made it kind of uh, black and white with really no, no subtleties to it. You know, he's not a Sidney Lumet. He's not a very thoughtful person. He's like an exploitation hustler kind of guy who doesn't really have, he, he's not a serious person. I mean, by his own admission, he is not that serious a person. He's a, he's a bon vivant. He's, a, he's British for one thing. And he's a British bon vivant who loves food and he loves movie making and he loves just running his mouth and, and airing his terrible, controversial opinions. It was the one of the most frightening and equally entertaining jobs I ever had. So I, I'm glad I did it, but I was also really glad when it was over. That's Alex Winter. He spends most of his time these days directing documentaries. His film Zappa was released last year. But before that, he was an actor, best known for playing Bill to Keanu Reeves' Ted. But before that, he made his film debut in Death Wish 3. So he can tell you all about what kind of a director Michael Winner was. There's a kind of a cliche idea of the the bullhorn carrying director with a chomping a giant cigar screaming at everybody. Now I need a causing couple. Where's a causing couple? I want two people in love. Well, all right, we have no one in love, that's fine. Uh, we better take somebody not in love then. I had been acting since I was little. I'd never encountered that director until Michael. So Michael was that director, but he was he was parodic. I think he did that because he thought that's what he was supposed to do. You know, people didn't do that. Even the crew looked at him like, what are you doing? Nobody does that. He's basically just a big troll. He is one of the original, like, big time trolls. He just, he will do the thing. He will go to the place that everybody else is afraid of because he thinks it's fun. Like, he has, a, he does not take life all that seriously. His most significant change to the book and to Wendell Mays' original script was in the inciting incident. Neither originally depicted the attack on Paul's wife and daughter. And originally, she was not raped by their attackers. In fact, in the book, when Paul first learns about the attack, his son-in-law assures him, and this is the dialogue, quote, they attacked them both. Oh, not rape. I don't mean rape. That wasn't it. 
They just beat them up, end quote. However, some directors have certain touches. You see a John Ford movie, you see the kind of like graveside monologue. You see like a Frederick Wiseman documentary. It's the meetings. These are the, these are like the gunfight for them. For Michael Winter, it's rape scenes. The book is pretty much told completely in the character's mind. So we don't see the rape. We learn about it when he learns about it. Also, in the original draft of the screenplay, it's the same thing. We don't see it happen. The character learns about it. So we learn it from him. So very controversial at the time. That was probably certainly one of the most uh, gruesome assault scenes in cinema history. Hey, mother, look at the artiste doing his art. That beautiful mother. My purse is in the kitchen. And when I interviewed Michael Winner, I asked him that. Why did you make that scene so gruesome? And he said, because he really wanted to uh, manipulate the audience. He really wanted the audience to see that scene and really say, hey, this is insane. This is really rough, crazy crime. These type of people need to be killed. So they would be on uh, Paul Kersey's side when he does go out and start actually killing people, shooting people. Michael Winner wanted the audience to feel this rage so they would be on his side and say, yes, you do have to kill these people. There's no other choice. But what was particularly disturbing about these scenes, according to those who worked on his films, was the specific ways in which Michael Winner shot them. Michael Winner's aesthetics could best be described as, I have dinner reservations at 7 p.m. They're extremely rushed. I would be surprised if he did more than one take. He never storyboarded. You can tell because the shots are just kind of like thrown together, haphazard. But then with the rape scenes, they're extremely meticulous. That's because like he takes the time on those rape scenes. He will take one or two days to shoot a rape scene, and he will, he will do it meticulously. And everything else looks like shit, and he doesn't really care. And they're deeply unpleasant. I mean, he just he just really, they go on forever. They're really graphic. They're just miserable, unpleasant experiences. And there's so many of them. What he does is he, even if it's one line in a script, he shoots them for days and days and days, right? And he closes the set, and he gets rid of everybody, and he usually just throws a mattress on the floor. And it's him often with the camera, maybe the DP. We had John Stanier, who was like, you know, this fantastic DP, who just clearly loathed Michael. Um, but he but he fucked with them all the time. But uh, so I don't know if John shot that sequence because I wasn't there in the end. Anyway, I heard that that he's just he's just going to it's just a sadist sort of psychosexual sadistic thing that he does. And we assume he just takes the footage home and screens it in his home projector because it never makes it into the film. And in many ways, that detail about this filmmaker explains so much about why these films are the way they are. Because they're cloaked in this righteousness, but he also can't resist leering at the sexual assault. He can't resist reveling in the bloodshed. He can't resist turning this mourning, broken man into a grinning, pistol-packing superhero. Francois Truffaut famously said that there's no such thing as an anti-war film because every film about war ends up, whatever its intentions, making war seem thrilling and exciting. And maybe the same holds true about an anti-vigilante movie. So this is a, a, a reckless movie, but, but just imagine like the, you know, the Lumet version of Death Wish. You would have that kind of moral complexity, and there are parts of it in the movie. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus Christ. In the second half hour of the movie, when you first starts killing people, there's a sort of like moral grayness there. Um, you, the first killing he does, he shoots someone and it's uh, impulsive. And then there's a shot of him staring at the guy and he's just sort of like writhing on the ground with a, with a gunshot, completely unexpectedly. 
and he runs back and he's panting and he's like nervous and whatever. And the first couple killings after that are a little like awkward, but then he gets really into it. It's just a, a switch, a, a switch flips. And all of a sudden he's like, this is great. I am all in on this. And, and the movie is all along with him as well. In her book, Branding New York, How a City in Crisis Was Sold to the World, Miriam Greenberg writes, quote, with a lone, heroic white man forced to fight bands of dark-skinned villains against a barren, lawless backdrop, Death Wish owed far more to Hollywood westerns than it did to the vaunted New York sensibility. For now that the western hinterlands had been suburbanized, the overpopulated inner city became Hollywood's new hostile frontier, as in the old western geography was destiny. New York City itself was a main character and primary antagonist, a malevolent force that, as the years and sequels went by, drove its depraved inhabitants to commit ever bloodier crimes, with the local authorities always pathetically powerless to stop them. End quote. When they made the original, this was before everything was sequelized. Back then, they didn't automatically make a sequel to every single movie, even the hit movies. So at the time, Dino De Laurentiis, who produced the original film, and Michael Winner didn't think you could make a sequel to Death Wish. They said, you know, how are you going to make a sequel? You can't continue this story. And Charles Bronson had no interest in making a sequel. But plenty of other filmmakers saw what Winner and Bronson had done and figured they could do it too. Created like a, a genre. It created the vigilante genre where it's something people could rip it off imitating it but still get away with it because they change it up enough there's plenty of vigilante movies that are like this that uh they, they are much more right-wing than this one like he is not michael winner was not a right-winger he had a lot of right-wing beliefs he was also had a lot of left-wing beliefs so he didn't really care but you do get a lot of imitators where it's just like straight up vigilantism where it's even worse than death wish death wish you know again like it sort of like actually shows that is difficult at least at first and then it's not difficult for him to do this at all but at least kind of acknowledges that, like, at least if initially, if you're going around just shooting people randomly, it's going to take a toll on you at first. And then you get used to it. But a lot of other, like, imitators are just, like, straight up, just like, oh, it's great. He's just going to kill these people. And it's just, like, robotic. And out they came in the years that followed. Vigilante, Vigilante Force, Act of Vengeance, Defiance, Rolling Thunder, I Spit on Your Grave, Miss 45, The Exterminator, Exterminator 2, The Executioner Part 2, even though there hadn't been an Executioner Part 1. Taxi Driver came out two years after this, you know, a good version of this movie. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. But as those films flooded drive-ins and grindhouses, Death Wish lay dormant. Brian Garfield, who wrote the novel, he wrote a sequel. De Laurentiis and Michael Winner didn't really like the sequel novel, and they weren't interested in making it. Enter Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. The Israeli filmmakers and cousins were angling to enter the American movie-making marketplace. So in 1979, they purchased Canon Films, a 12-year-old exploitation producer and distributor, best known at that time for releasing the aforementioned 1970 film Joe. And they figured that a shortcut to achieving some cultural penetration and making some money was to make a sequel to an established hit with a big star. They wanted to make a hit movie and they were able to get the rights to uh, Death Wish, the sequel rights. 
Charles Bronson was very reluctant to do it. They paid him an incredible amount of money. He couldn't turn it down. And Charles Bronson said, well, if you're going to make Death Wish 2, Michael Winner has to direct it. I won't do it if he doesn't direct it. So Michael Winner was brought in. And at the time, Michael Winner needed a hit. After Death Wish, he was sought after, got offered all these action movies. He wanted to go back to comedy. After Death Wish, he had he never had another hit. So when Death Wish 2 came out, he was like, okay, I need a hit. And he told me what he was trying to do with that second one was really just a sleazy remake of the original. Whenever something uh, comes in to rip off something, they know you're not going to make as much money as the original version. In order to compete, you really have to give them something they haven't seen. So they really have to up the sleaze factor in terms of violence or assault and things like that. And you'll never guess how Michael Winner decided to up the sleaze factor for Death Wish 2. They have two rape scenes in the film. And Michael Winner, in the script, again, the daughter does not get raped. In the script, they kid the, the, uh, the villains kidnap her and they're about to rape her. And then she jumps out the window and dies. Winner decided to actually show the rape. And he also got this idea. Winner wrote in this character of Kersey having a housekeeper. And she also gets raped. So both of those scenes are just insane, way over the top. In fact, the maid, supposedly they filmed that. It took them like four days. All They filmed that all day. In fact, the camera crew, the director of photography and his crew said, enough, we're out of here. This is insane. And they quit. When Roderick Mann of the Los Angeles Times asked Winner how likely it was that Kersey's daughter would be raped again in such similar fashion, the director replied, Oh, I don't know. Perhaps the poor girl is just accident prone. But what's especially striking about the sequels, and this is from Death Wish 2 on, really, is how little each one seems like a sequel to the last. You know, the first film had that gritty urban nightmare vibe, and that's gone by the second. It's doing something closer to the slasher horror movies that were popular at the time. And then the third film abandons that to veer into this cartoon territory, you know, more like the Rambo movies in style and closer to the Death Wish ripoff Defiance in its plot. It's weird. It becomes like a case of the snake eating its own tail that by the later installments in the series, they're imitating movies that were themselves imitating Death Wish with no hint of the original in sight. They're just trying to like, capture like, the, the, the thrill of the, the first Death Wish, and they're not. And they're all different films, too. The first one, like I said, is, that's a vigilante movie. The second one's a revenge movie. The third one's a little bit between vigilante and uh, and revenge because like the gang members who killed his friend, He's but there's a hundred of them. There's like a hundred gang members. They're just like cockroaches, and they must be all be stabbed out. Obviously, it kind of goes off the rails with, with the, the sequels, especially. That's Latoya Ferguson again with another valid point. Each sequel has to give Paul Kersey another wife or girlfriend or surrogate daughter who then has to be killed or assaulted to justify his bloodlust. Just from reading what the sequels are, this man has the most like terrible luck that's ever existed. The death wishes anyone who falls in love with him. That's what it is. And then Paul Kersey himself, you know, he's something like a real character in the first film. In the sequels, like every other action hero of the 80s, He's just a machine for kills and for kill quips. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Who the fuck are you? Death. 
they're trying to have is a canon films version of like a Rambo kind of thing, where he just goes into a place and he just kills everybody. And that is reflecting of the action genre that has completely blown up, that hard bodies uh, thing that takes over the 80s, where you have incredibly ripped men like Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger going in and enacting uh, blunt vengeance and blunt justice on the people. Alex Winter's story of how he got hired for Death Wish 3 can also tell us something about the decreasing budgets and care that were taken in the sequels. I was at NYU Film School by then, so I'd been acting all through my childhood. Then I stopped to go to NYU, and I was doing whatever I could while I was at film school just to make money. And I got a, a request from my agent to go meet Michael Winter. I used to go to auditions sometimes just to meet directors that I, that I thought were interesting. So with Winter, it wasn't necessarily that I thought he was good, but I, I certainly thought he was interesting. His reputation had preceded him. Uh, I was a big fan of the film The Stuntman, which I had been told was based on it, on him. And uh, so, I, so I thought, let's go see what this guy's like in person. So I, I, he was in his squalid little office in, on the by the West Side Highway on like 56th and like 11th Avenue. And um, I guess it was whatever they were renting for, for him to work out of. Uh, this windowless room in this kind of warehouse area, um, at, which, which it was in those days. And I just talked to him for a little while. and But he told me while I was sitting there that he wanted to hire me. And uh, it was mystifying. I mean, it wasn't. It was mystifying at first until he explained why, why he wanted to hire me. But because I was just kind of, you know, sort of cherubic theater kid. And he wanted me to play a Puerto Rican gangster, right? Um that that like rapes and kills people and 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 I thought okay you know I, I'm all up for the stretch but but then it transpired that he knew that I was born in England um, and he was shooting most of the film in London and he asked me if I was a dual citizen um, because he said if I was a dual citizen he could he wouldn't have to pay me you know as a he could hire me as a local essentially and just plug me into London. And so suddenly the plan all began to make sense. Michael Winter told Paul Talbot that he considered Death Wish 3, quote, a wonderful, bouncy horror comic, end quote. And Menachem Golan was just as thrilled with it, bragging to the press, quote, it has a rape in it like you've never seen, end quote. But according to Alex Winter, it was strictly low rent, especially after Bronson's considerable salary was paid. I think they paid him $4 million out of the $10 million. I'm, I'm, I think that's what I... Yeah, I think that's what I was told. And I also heard they were funneling a chunk of that money to the Israeli army, military, because uh, that's what Golan Globus w would often do. I don't know if I'm speaking out of school because I think this was pretty a uh, pretty clandestine piece, but we, we all knew it. Like everybody who worked on Canon movies knew that that's what they were doing. So I think that the production budget was probably like half a million. I mean, it was like, it was like a porno movie. I mean, it really was like the bottom of the barrel for, it was not, there was no $10 million movie anywhere to be seen there. 1983, they'd made Star Wars six years before for the same amount of, you know what I mean? Like for less, it was kind of a Z grade movie. And, and Bronson was not, he was not under illusions that it wasn't. Man. They get away from the original premise, which is that an everyday man goes out in the street, taking the law into his own hand, uh, trying to fight you know, the, the high skyrocketing crime rates in New York City or Los Angeles. And that it completely abandons that by the sequels. It becomes something else. He just becomes sort of like an action star. They're always fitting it for the era, what's going on in it. How did we get from this first Death Wish, this really gritty, realistic, scary movie, to the rest of the series, which becomes like this ridiculous... Uh, uh, comic book, you know, a, an outrageous comic book. 
you know, he was this very jingoistic, racist, sexist, very, you know, patriarchal, white, aloof, elitist. That's what he was. I mean, to his core and proudly. So the, the whole kind of thesis of his worldview was absolutely the thesis of, of the of the worlds he was creating with the Death Wish movies. And they got they got more Michael as they went along, right? The first one, it's kind of like a real movie almost, even though if if you're a New Yorker, you watch a movie, you're like, this is the most racist fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, what planet are they on? This is the bad guy. Someone should shoot him. You know? It's like Bernard Getz is the hero. Like, what planet are they on? But you know, you watch the movie and it's sort of in that old school kind of dirty, hairy template kind of, and you sort of accept it. But with each movie, the, the his true colors start to get shown. Winners, I mean. What are you doing? Thinning the herd. Doubling down on, no, really, all of these people, the great unwashed should be purged. Uh, I would be happy to do it. The bigger the gun, the better. Um, it is a white man's world. And... Uh, and by three, it really was, it really was, all those cards were on the table and it was parodic. Like I said, it, it just gotten so completely over the top. It was, it was laughable, really. And that winds up like destroying his friendship with Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson sees Death Wish 3 and it's just like, that's too much. You fucked this up. We are never going to make another movie. I'm going to go make movies with Jay Lee Thompson again. But returns continued to diminish with Thompson's Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. And by the time Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, was released in 1994, it basically went straight to video. Canon films had fallen apart by then, and Golan and Globus had parted ways. Golan released the film through 21st Century Pictures, his failed attempt at a Canon 2.0. He announced a reboot shortly thereafter titled Death Wish 6, The New Vigilante, but his company went under before he could make that happen. The Death Wish series went out with a whimper. Well, it had one more gasp in it, like the death rattle of one of Paul Kersey's targets. Paul, you're not a cop! Then somebody has to do it! My wife and daughter just disappear, and there's no consequences. I did everything I was supposed to do. Everything. I worked hard. I obeyed the law. I, I made a life for my family for my wife and daughter, and what, they just forget about that? They're just gone now? The idea of a Death Wish remake had floated around Hollywood for years. At various points, both Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger were rumored to be eyeing the role. But it finally hit theaters in 2018, with Eli Roth directing, and Bruce Willis stepping into the role of Paul Kersey. He was no longer an architect, but a surgeon. And he was no longer based out of New York City, but Chicago a city that right-wing media has turned into the kind of code word for urban anarchy that New York was in the 1970s. People rely on the police to keep them safe. That's the problem. Police only arrive after the crime has taken place. That's like trapping the fox as he's coming out of the hen house. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. But that's not the only disturbing update to this 21st century death wish. 
It's impossible to watch the remake without thinking of the most notorious self-appointed vigilante of our era. George Zimmerman, who murdered 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in 2012 because he felt threatened by the unarmed black teenager. The hoodie Martin was wearing at the time of his murder became a potent symbol for unfounded white fear. And in the Death Wish remake, Paul Kersey, the white vigilante who takes it upon himself to save the city of Chicago from its mostly black and Latinx criminal element, wears a hoodie. It becomes his trademark, as viral videos turn him into a folk hero. And so, the original Death Wish and its remake have plenty of differences, but one key similarity. Both were directed by an unapologetic troll. On the next episode of Fun City Cinema, we continue our dive into Death Wish by looking at how it changed the career of its star. It almost was kind of a curse because those movies were what everybody remembers him for. How it turned the book's author into an activist. Because he was like, again, it was not supposed to be an endorsement of vigilantism. And how we got from Paul Kersey to Bernie Goetz to George Zimmerman to Kyle Rittenhouse with our special guest, Jelani Cobb. The most benign explanation of it is that these are things that happened at formative points in people's lives, and they just kind of have this worldview that's frozen from that point. The alternate explanation is that this is pure cynicism and manipulation of people's fears. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out on October 26th from Abrams Books and available now for pre-order. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hull. Special thanks to today's guests. LaToya Ferguson has bylines at AV Club, Variety, and many more, and is the managing editor of RondaRousey.com. She also co-hosts the Angel on Top and Empire Diaries podcast. You can follow her on Twitter at LaFergs. Matt Perget is a journalism professor with bylines at Uproxx, Vulture, The Guardian, and Polygon. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Perget. Paul Talbot's books, Bronson's Loose, on the set of the Death Wish films, and Bronson's Loose Again, on the set with Charles Bronson, are available in physical and ebook formats and are highly recommended. You can also hear his audio commentaries for several Charles Bronson films from KL Studio Classics. And Alex Winter's latest documentary, Zappa, is now available on Blu-ray, DVD, and VOD. It's also streaming on Hulu. You can also see him in Bill and Ted Face the Music, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Winter. And an extra special thanks to all of our patrons. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at patreon.com slash funcitycinema. And you can also rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really does help. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and pre-order your copy of Jason's book. If you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced in today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at FunCityCinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at BrainwashedLib, and Jason is at Jason-Bailey. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.
what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen.